A very good morning to you all. My name's Andy. I'm the pastor of the church here. uh, And I'm very much looking forward to seeing some of you in the flesh next weekend. That would be absolutely wonderful. Uh, But as Tiago said to us earlier, please do make sure that you have let the office know that you're coming, if at all possible. Uh, You need to do that really by sort of Friday, Saturday morning at the very, very latest. Uh, So make sure you drop us an email or phone the office on Wednesday morning or Friday morning and let us know that. Well, we're going to be uh, looking at Mark's Gospel now, those verses that we just read earlier. So let's pray before we start. Father, will you help us now as we look into your word and as we come to the end of Mark's Gospel to see wonderful and glorious truths about your Son and help us as we do so to grow in faith and to grow in likeness to him, in whose name we ask. Amen. Well, this is going to be our last instalment in Mark's Gospel. And in actual fact, we have managed to do Mark's Gospel in 59 instalments. That's fantastic. Just over a year, really. Uh, The more observant amongst you will notice that when we had our reading earlier, that we did not read out uh, chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Now, there's a number of reasons for this, and I will be producing a short kind of video blog at some point, perhaps this week, to explain why I think that the footnotes, probably in your and my Bible, are correct uh, in stating that this is probably not something that Mark originally wrote. So do look out for that little video. I hope it will be informative for you. Now, I've always loved running the Christianity Explored course. Uh, And those who've helped me to run that course over the years will know that I always finish the last session in the same way. I, uh, I put a chair in front of the group and I ask them what they can tell me about that chair. Does it look like a very well made chair? What do you think of the materials? Are they strong? Is the chair fit for purpose? Do you think it would take your weight if you sat on it? Um, Tell me about the chair. What what do you know about the chair? Its quality, where it's come from. Uh, I might even tell them some stories about when I once sat on that chair and how it all worked out really well for me. You know, I really just sort of overdo it and people are sort of thinking I've lost the plot at this point. Uh, And all the answers to that might well be, you know, yes, uh, I do think that chair looks fit for purpose and trustworthy, as long as I've put a chair in front of them that does look that way. And then that leads me to draw a parallel to the chair. As we've gone through Mark's gospel, as we do in the Christianity Explored course, we've been presented, haven't we, with wave after wave of evidence the testimonies, actually, of of eyewitnesses who said they saw these things, and all of which have served to paint a picture of who Jesus is. We've seen his authority over nature. Think back to those first chapters of Mark's Gospel. His authority over sickness and over disease, over evil, and even his authority over death. We've heard him declare his authority to forgive sin and then to back it up with an amazing miracle to to show that what he's saying is true. And we've seen also Jesus purposefully walking then 
to the cross. Suffering betrayal and rejection and mockery and the horror of the crucifixion so that, in his words, he could give his life as a ransom for many. And I hope you've understood why that was necessary, his giving his life like that. That there is, as we said last week, there is no way that you and I could pay the debt of our sin to God. We need an innocent, perfect substitute to take our place and to pay our debt. All of this we've seen, haven't we, as we've flicked through the pages of Mark's Gospel here. And like that chair... We have been over the weeks, over 59 weeks, we've been able to scrutinise those details to look at what they're really saying and to form an opinion about Jesus. But now at the end of the gospel, you need to, know, you need to decide what you're going to do with that observation. You've got all of the data. What are you going to do with all of that data about Jesus? And I think that in this closing section of Mark's gospel, that's certainly one of the big points about where Mark is going here. It's the big thing, the thing he's trying to say to us. This last bit, actually from, say, uh, chapter 15, verse 40, all the way through to the end of verse 8 of chapter 16, appears to be another one of those Mark sandwiches. Do you remember that Mark writes his stories in sandwiches? Have a, have a look at this one. See, the basic structure here is that in verses 40 to 41, Mark introduces us to some women who were present at the crucifixion. And then you can see the structure because we meet them again in verse 47, and we're with those women again all the way through to the end of verse 8 in chapter 16. But between those two sections about the women who are witnessing things, we get this little section all about a man named Joseph. He's the man who obtains Jesus's body after his death and, and buries him. It's a very interesting sandwich to end the book on, if this is the end. And if you look more closely at this sandwich, you see it actually has a kind of theme woven through it. See if you can spot it. In verse 40, you find that the women are watching everything as the crucifixion goes on. In verse 47, again, we're told that they see where the body is laid. They see where, where Jesus is buried. And then again, in chapter 16, verse 4, we're told again that they're seeing again. They're seeing things. And, and why do I draw that out? Because Mark's actually used exactly the same word three times there for seeing and the word literally means to observe as a spectator. That's really interesting. These women are observing everything as spectators, or as Mark puts it more specifically there, uh, from a distance. They're seeing things from a distance. They're taking it all in with their eyes. The crucifixion, the burial, the empty tomb. These women have got all the data, you see, all the information but what will they do with it? What will they do? You see, the important thing is not just who do you say Jesus is. I mean, that's a really important thing already. That's an important question, isn't it? Who do you say Jesus is? But even more importantly, here at the end, what are you going to do with that information? What will you do with it? Let's take a closer look at what we've got here then. 
So we're going to go back a couple of verses and we're going to read actually from verse 39 and take it all in. Have a look with me. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up from Jerusalem with him to Jerusalem were also there. See, now in all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, these women get mentioned as being present at the crucifixion. And three of them mention, and get this, they, three of them mentioned they were watching at a distance. This is something that the gospel writers want us to see. They're all distant observers. Now, Mark doesn't claim to give us an exhaustive list of these women, does he? But he does mention three of them. You've got Mary Magdalene. Uh, she's the woman that Luke tells us Jesus uh, cast seven demons out of. She was a devoted follower of Jesus who had had probably one of those incredible testimonies that you'd have a special event so she could tell her testimony uh, for, Mary Magdalene. He also mentions another Mary. This Mary is the mother of James the Younger, we're told, and of Joseph. That's the Mary who's almost certainly Jesus' mother. And the fellows mentioned there are Jesus' half-brothers. And finally, Mark also mentions a third lady, Salome. Who's she? Well, interestingly, she's probably the mother of the disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder. In Matthew's gospel, she would be actually the one who came to Jesus to ask that her boys could sit on Jesus's right and on his left when he came in his glory and in his kingdom. Those women, we're told by Mark, began to follow Jesus right back up in Galilee and they became part of his kind of his support crew that looked after things. Mark tells us that they cared for his needs. In fact, Luke goes further and he says that along with many others, these women supported him out of their own means. They contributed materially financially perhaps, practically certainly, to Jesus's ministry so that that ministry could happen, could continue. And so obviously these women, Jesus is precious to them. They love him dearly. And put yourself in their shoes. You can imagine how devastated they have been to witness, if even from a distance, the events that have transpired as they've seen Jesus be betrayed, arrested, slandered in a, in a legal environment, sentenced and executed, and all of that has happened in just six hours. Like the rest of the disciples, I'm sure that at this point they are terrified, hence their distance, and they're also heartbroken. But they're still there, and that's the great thing about them, isn't it? Uh, you know, a lot of the disciples seem to have fled, but those women, even if at a distance, they are still there to the bitter end, witnessing helplessly as the one that they love so dearly breathes his last breath on the cross. 
They will not take their eyes off of Jesus, Mark tells us, until it's all over and done with and Jesus has been sealed in the tomb. Now I wonder, what did those women make of Jesus at this point? What did they make of him? I mean, surely his mother, Mary, must have known that he was unlike any ordinary man. I mean, obviously she would know that. For starters, she knew that he'd been conceived supernaturally. And he'd grown up as a perfect child in a home. Imagine that. Never rebellious, always obedient. I mean, that's going to get the attention of any parent, isn't it? To have a child like that. And she, along with the others, had seen what Jesus had done. I don't know at what point she started to actually follow him, but she started to follow him, seeing his ministry, seeing, hearing what he'd said and what he taught, seeing what he did. And at a bare minimum, these women, we know, don't we, were convinced, as the disciples were, that Jesus was from God and that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ, God's deliverer for the nation. But what were they to make of his death? What would they have made of this past six hours? Well, despite the fact that Jesus had told them and had made it very, very clear repeatedly that he would rise again. It's clear from chapter 16 that they were not expecting a literal fulfillment of Jesus's words, were they? And so there remains some distance. And that segues us sort of into the next section, if you'll look with me, because here we get to the filling of the sandwich right here and everybody knows that's always the main point of a sandwich isn't it the filling is what the sandwich is all about so let's take a look at it verse 42 it was preparation day that is the day before the sabbath so as evening approached joseph of arimathea a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of god went boldly to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. But when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen, some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So evening's approaching, we're told. And it was important to the Jews, in accordance actually with the law of Moses, you can read in Deuteronomy, to be sure that the body of an executed man, even an executed criminal, was buried before sunset. Now, see, that's in contrast with the Romans, who would quite happily have had a body up on display as long as possible. Uh, they would have been quite happy for the body to be rotting and the birds picking at the flesh. I mean, that's just a great warning to others about stepping out of line and, you know, challenging the might of Rome. And crucifixion, of course, itself was a good way to delay death for hours. But we're told here Jesus had already died. We know that from last week, don't we? See, the danger 
of rushing an interment like this, putting Jesus in a tomb, is that obviously you might bury someone, if you're rushing it, who's not actually dead, but just looks dead. Someone who's unconscious. Some people believe that was the case with Jesus. It's clearly not so, actually, from Mark's gospel. And to hasten death because of this, the Jews requested, and you can read this in the other gospels, that the legs of the victims were broken, and that would bring death about pretty quickly. But John tells us that when the soldiers came to Jesus to break his legs, it was so obvious to these experienced executioners that Jesus was dead that they didn't even bother. According to verse 44 here in our passage, Pilate is actually surprised at how quickly Jesus has died. And so he asks the centurion, we, we know the centurion, don't we? The one who confessed that Jesus was the son of God. He asks him to certify the death. He's the supervisor and he's a professional executioner. And he would be very good at it. And the account then leaves us with no doubt Jesus was in fact dead and certified dead. But listen, that kind of misses the point, really. And I'm getting slightly off track here. Back to the filling of the sandwich. You see, the point here is found in verse 43, look, where we're introduced to a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And we're told here he's a prominent member of the council. The council would obviously be referring to the Sanhedrin itself. We're quite familiar with them too, aren't we? He's a big figure, we're told, in that group of religious leaders who had conspired against Jesus, the ones who had orchestrated his death out of hatred and, and envy. And here he is, this man, Joseph, coming for the body of Jesus so that he can give him an honourable burial. And I think that's supposed to be a surprise to us, isn't it? We don't know his backstory. I mean, I really wish we did know a bit more about Joseph of Arimathea. And whenever we don't know a backstory, a whole lot of legends seem to be cooked up by people in church history. But it's not a good idea to speculate. Let's stick with what we do know. Luke tells us that this man, Joseph, and I quote, was a good and righteous man. Luke also makes sure that we know that Joseph did not give his consent or his approval to the actions that were taken by the council in condemning and executing Jesus. So it appears that actually this man, Joseph, probably known to the early church, was a secret follower of Jesus all along. But the most important detail, according to Mark, take a look. The thing Mark wants you to know about Joseph was that Joseph was a man who was genuinely, verse 43, waiting for the kingdom of God. Here's a man living with an expectation, someone who's really waiting for something that's going to happen in the future, the arrival of the kingdom of God. What does that tell us? What does it mean? Well, it tells us that this man, Joseph, was not all invested in this current age. That's not where he was investing himself. He was looking and waiting eagerly for the day when God's kingdom finally arrived, finally was established on the earth. That's what excited Joseph. And this is all despite his, his obvious wealth, we're told about. He's a man of wealth and 
influence. But despite that wealth, Joseph wants more than this world offers, doesn't he? He wants the kingdom of God. Rather than grabbing at more power and more influence, he's already an influential member of the highest council. No, rather than that, he is eager, look, to bow the knee to the king of kings in God's kingdom. He's a righteous, he's a good man. Uh, and everything that Joseph knows about Jesus, remember, as he's seen what Jesus has said and done, ticks the box for God's king, the Messiah. How excited must Joseph have been when he discovered Jesus? And what he does in verse 43 here shows that and is actually a really big deal. Think about it. It takes some courage to do what Joseph does. Joseph, you see, will no longer just be a spectator. That's what he's been up until this point, isn't it? He will not be a distant observer. He goes, we're told, and look at how Mark puts it in verse 43. He goes boldly <laughs> to Pilate. He goes, I'm sure, in full knowledge of all of his peers in the Sanhedrin. And he gets an audience, this Jewish man, with the Roman governor. All of this takes guts. And he asks to have the body of Jesus. Look at verse 46. See his devotion here. See what he does. He, we're told, purchases the linen. He takes the body down, according to Mark. He himself tenderly wraps it for burial. He's the one who places Jesus in the family tomb, sealing the entrance with a stone. Mark makes it all very personal about Joseph. He's hands-on, do you see? And the resurrection epilogue that we get in chapter 16, those eight verses that we have, again, do you see, contrasts the actions of Joseph, the filling of the sandwich, with those of the women, either side of him, who follow, who see, who hear, but who flee the scene, actually, at the end, in verse 8, saying nothing, we're told, to anyone, because they are so afraid. Look at the contrast. It's a massive contrast, isn't it? And I think that Mark's challenge then, without wanting to be too disparaging to these incredible women, is to follow, rather, the example of Joseph here in our approach to Jesus. All others have either fled or are distantly keeping to the shadows. But this man, whose name we all know, Joseph of Arimathea, he's the one who steps forward and who takes those convictions he's got about Jesus and puts them into action. So you can know everything about that chair. And this is the point I like to make. You can know enough about that chair to express a firm opinion about it. It's, it's a strange example, isn't it? But, but all of that is actually just academic. It's a bit meaningless unless you actually then go and sit on it. Unless you actually then put your weight on the chair. And the challenge of the gospel, likewise, is not just to be a passive observer, but to move from the facts to faith putting your faith in him. And then from faith to action, 
which is what we see in Joseph. I mean, consider another observer, actually, as we see all of that pattern come together. Do you remember the centurion that we looked at last week, who Mark tells us in verse 39, which we read earlier, heard, listen to the way, way Mark puts it, he heard his cry. He's using the ears. He saw how he died. And it was that, Mark says, or at least he connects it, that leads him to declare by faith, surely this man was the Son of God. You know, that's a staggering sentence for a Roman to make, isn't it? I mean, even the emperors were sons of God. They were very familiar with their being sons of the gods. But no, he's specific here. This was the Son of God. Not just a Son of God. The Son of God. He moved from facts, from observations, to faith. He began to actually believe in Jesus. But you see, faith is completed and perfected. How? By actions. That's how you know faith is genuine, isn't it? And that is what we see here in Joseph. That's the filling of the sandwich. Now, perhaps as we've looked at the life and the death of Jesus, you too have found it quite compelling. Maybe that is you. Will you remain a distant observer? a gatherer of data, of facts, someone who can now answer a few more questions in the pub quiz about the life of Jesus? Or will you instead rather commit yourself to him by faith? Will you trust him? Will you go even further and start to lean your weight on him and lean your weight on him fully? What does that mean? Well, it means that you would turn your life over to him, doesn't it? You would bring him your debt of sin and trust him for forgiveness and trust him for eternal life. That is what it means to lean your weight on Jesus, isn't it? Seeing's got to turn to trusting, which is going to be seen in a life of repentance and humbly following him. And that's what a genuine disciple of Jesus is. You know, interestingly, Mark doesn't, I don't think, give us a huge amount of information about the resurrection in, verse, in chapter 16. It's almost like he just adds it on as kind of uh, an appendix at the end of his passage. It's almost how it reads, isn't it? You know, the other gospel writers have got all sorts of things happening after Jesus is raised. But one thing Mark does do is he leaves us with no doubt about its reality. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Let's finally look at that little section in chapter 16 together. Read with me from verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting at the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? 
but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. These women have, we saw earlier, haven't we, seen where the body of Jesus had been laid. So they go and buy the required spices to anoint Jesus' body for burial. But those spices obviously are never put to use. Jesus was buried on Friday evening, but when the women arrive early, we're told, very early on Sunday morning, Jesus has already vacated that tomb. They're having a discussion on the way, aren't they, about how they're going to get the stone removed. Perhaps they were hoping that they'd get some help from, you know, a labourer somewhere, a gardener or something like that, a workman. But as they look up, we're told, they see that the stone, which Mark describes as very large, has already been rolled away. It's a wonderful account, isn't it? It's a shame it's not Easter, but we should remember this more and more, shouldn't we? See, tombs in this era were basically small caves. We're told that most of them that have been excavated were about nine by six feet in size. And inside this little cave, you'd find there'd be some shelves on either side where bodies were laid to decompose. After decomposition, the bones would then be stored underneath in some kind of an ossuary. Once a body had been interred in the tomb, it was sealed with a very large piece of masonry. The stones that were used uh, were clearly designed to be rolled easily into place, perhaps down a downward track, but would be very hard to roll back afterwards. After all, you didn't want to make it easy for grave robbers to get in. And the women are obviously puzzled that this has already been done. And so they investigate further, says Mark. And inside the tomb, they see a young man dressed in a white robe. It doesn't sound particularly spectacular, but their response tells us it must have been. The other gospel writers describe his clothing as being like lightning. They are dazzling white robes. And the response, as we said, of the women is to be very afraid, to be perplexed. Now, the message from this heavenly messenger is a simple one. Something like this. You're looking for Jesus, but he's not here because he's risen. You can see where he's laid, says the young man. But now you must go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you. It's not a complicated message, is it? But it is an intriguing end to the gospel story. It leaves us, first of all, in no doubt that Jesus has risen and he has risen bodily from the dead and it reminds his disciples that this is precisely what Jesus said he would do and that's important isn't it in fact Luke records this messenger actually starting his conversation with his women by asking the question why are you looking for the living amongst the dead like he sort of thinks are you slightly, have you guys slightly missed the plot here? What are you actually doing here? And why have you got that armload of spices with you? Were you not listening to Jesus? Clearly, if they'd actually believed what Jesus had said, 
there'll be no cause to be alarmed or to be afraid. What the women expected, and this is fantastic, isn't it? What they expected to be the end of the matter, the conclusion of the story. Jesus properly sealed away, anointed for burial, the tomb closed, the story over. Turns out actually to be the beginning of the story. And that's why I actually kind of love this ending. (laughs) This young man is telling them, no, the story's just started, women. In fact, Jesus is going to meet his disciples right back where it all started. Right back in Galilee, on the beach where he first called them. Get back to starting positions. The story is going to go on. Unlike so many former religious men, people who founded man-made religions, there is and there will be no monument erected at the final resting place of Jesus. We serve a risen God, a risen Saviour. And without bringing forward all the eyewitness accounts like the other gospel writers, Mark has established for us Jesus has risen physically from the dead. And look at what the young man says. He says, look, see where they laid him. The body was here, physically was here, physically is not. Jesus has risen physically. And the resurrection is important for a number of reasons. I'm going to focus on two. But before I do, I'll give you a third. (laughs) You see, if you are wanting to know anything about what happens after this life, if you're intrigued about what happens after death, The best person to go to about it, the best voice to listen to about it, is one who has been beyond death and has come back again and spoken. Isn't that right? I think that's one reason why the resurrection is important. But here are two really big ones. First, it's the last piece of the puzzle that completes the picture of what Jesus came to do. The Apostle Paul summarised it later on, saying this. Listen, it's from Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for our justification. We can pop that up on the screen. Paul tells us there exactly why Jesus died and why Jesus rose again, doesn't he? Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. We saw that last week, didn't we? He was our sacrificial lamb. He was our once-for-all sacrifice to pay for our sins, to ransom us. But how could his disciples ever know that it really had worked? How do we know that his sacrifice for our sins satisfied God? How do we know God's justice was satisfied? How do we know that the wrath of God doesn't still hang over our heads because of our sin? Well, I'll tell you why. It is because Jesus rose again from the dead. Physical evidence. He rose to life, says Paul, for our justification. It's a beautiful Bible word. In fact, the language Mark uses here is quite precise in 
this chapter 16. It's better translated according to one commentator, James Edwards, not uh, he is risen, but he was raised. He's not here, he was raised. That is, God raised him from the dead. And it's upon that truth that God raised him from the dead that our justification, our right standing before God hangs. God accepted the sacrifice of his son. It was pleasing to him. And the empty tomb, the fact that you and I cannot visit the remains of Jesus stands as a testimony to that truth that we are justified in God's sight. That's wonderful enough, isn't it? But there's a second big thing about the resurrection. I'll close on this. It reminds us that a day of reckoning is going to come. I mean, really, the story in Mark's gospel ends with a tremendous injustice, doesn't it? And we just seen catalogued for us a whole sequence of injustices for a couple of chapters, atrocities against the Son of God. Well, when Paul preached before the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, he said this, that God now, and we've got this one up for the screen as well, commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. That's what the resurrection's all about, do you see? A day has been set, says Paul, when all people everywhere will have to give an account for the way that they have lived their lives and the way that they have treated the God who gave them that life to live. And on that day, says Paul, the judge before whom you and I will actually stand will be the risen and exalted, glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the judge. And he will rightly look some people in the eye on that day and say, why did you reject me? Why did you not come to me for salvation while there was still time? Why did you not do that? Depart from me into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those were the words Jesus used. But there will be others on that day. Those who have not just seen and heard, but those who have put their trust in the Son of God. And on that day, oh, and this is staggering, wonder of wonders, they will find that the judge before whom they're standing is also their saviour. Well, which group will you be in? As we walk through Mark's gospel, we have seen Jesus, haven't we? We've seen him in all kinds of detail. We've seen some of his authority, his wisdom and his goodness, his perfection, his glory and his grace in everything he's done and said. But will you just remain a distant spectator looking at it from afar off? Or will you now move from seeing it to trusting in the Saviour? From knowing the facts to leaning your weight on the reality 
that is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our risen and glorious Lord Jesus. We thank you that with him there is never any need to fear, for he has redeemed us from our sin. He has conquered death and risen victoriously from the grave. Father, increase our faith so that we might trust him more and more each day. In every anxious moment, come sickness or sorrow, or even in the face of death. We thank you that on the final judgment day, our judge, if we put our trust in him, will also be our advocate, will also be our redeemer. And it is in that glorious resurrection hope that we now live. And we live for his glory. And in his name we now pray. Amen.